Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's conversation with the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. I'm super excited today because I'm in a warehouse uh, in Bonnie. It's the home of Greenwich Vintage Shoes and my buddy, uh, Tommy Pomazzi. And I'm really excited to be out here and talk to you today because you've got kind of a cool story. So thanks for letting me come out. I really appreciate it. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this and I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. So give people a little idea of your background. I mean, I've, you haven't said enough that they recognize that that is not a Shakopee accent. <laughs> yeah, right. That's not. <laughs> so, so tell people a little bit about your backstory. So, uh, yeah, originally I was born in New York, Bronx kid, um, parents Hungarian immigrant, came here in 68. 69 my father was an artist back in hungary my mother was basically a trust fund baby from my grandpa on that side of the family they escaped to italy and then uh came to new york and then i was born in 69 in the bronx and we were very not well-to-do people but uh we lived obviously uh, hand to mouth my father tried to become an artist or was an artist and got commissioned for artwork. And then my mother basically did waitressing and whatever she could do to, you know, afford milk or orange juice or whatever we were doing that day. But um, I would say that it was, you know, I was real young back then. So it was kind of interesting to look back on how young my mother was and how young my dad was and they came to this country not speaking a word of English and being immigrants and being a refugee from communist Hungary um, to, you know, 10, 20 years later being self-made. and Basically, my old man crawled into a bottle, never left, and that, that was his downward spiral. And then my mother became self-made in the telephone soliciting business in California. So we moved to California in, I would say, the late 70s. And we lived in Vegas. So my mom and dad, let me back up, my mom and dad broke up. And obviously, my mom put us in a, I think she famously always says that she put me in a Ford Dart. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, kind we of were, a car aficionado. <laughs> yeah, not. I think she bought the car from like one of my you know, loose uncles that lived in Passaic in New Jersey um, for a couple hundred dollars. And she drove cross country. She, Pretty courageous. Yeah. Well, I mean. I mean, it's English second language. Yeah, she was jumping right. fences to get away from the communists. So I right. think it's, that. By contrast, this know, seemed like an easy trip. For sure. For sure. Okay. So you're out in California. And- yep. So we lived in Vegas for a very short time. And then my mother heard about like this telephone soliciting business, um, selling pens over the phone. Okay. So like the whole thing would be is she'd call you up and she'd sell you on embossing your name's business on a gross of pens. Okay. So my mom got really good at it. (laughs) For some reason, the Zsa Zsa Gabor, because my mom's Hungarian accent is just green acres. Oh, really? Oh, my God, bro. She is... (laughs) She's like, if I put Darling. her on the phone, oh my God, it's the worst. So, and you know, growing up, 
later on it's kind of like you bring people over the house and they expect like you know Doris Day and it's like Zsa Zsa Gabor <laughs> you know so it was it was kind of it was kind of interesting which I think we lost about half our audience yeah. not going to know any of those people no, those, any of those references but <laughs> so, google them because they're right. interesting so um we get to Los Angeles and we lived in Van Nuys we, we lived in Oxnard and that's when I became aware of my surroundings like kind of like when you're growing up you're like Oh, okay. Like, there's these kids. They're skateboarding. There's these kids over here doing graffiti. Like, there's kids over here smoking dope. There's like, so it was kind of interesting because it was definitely a melting pot of uh, Latin culture, Mexican, American. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, you know, I've heard. I haven't been back there in years, it's decades. But you know, I've heard that it's cleaned up. But when we lived there, it was very, very heavy Latino Mexican culture there. And we stuck out like a thumb, you know, like a, a sore thumb because we weren't. Right. I mean, Eastern we European via New York. Yeah. And right. we lived in a little apartment and my mom went to work every day and I went to daycare and, I, you know, it was just. And then my mom met my stepdad who basically was like. In that business and in that arena, he was the Michael Jordan. Like, he could sell salt to a slug over the phone. Like, he had been doing it for so long that he could just... He was incredible over the phone. Like, he could get shit done like I could never believe. So, But my mom was also very good on the phone. It takes a type of talent Mm -hmm. to be very... I wouldn't say courageous, but present and confident right. over the phone to strange people that you don't know to sell them something that they don't need. Mm-hmm. It's Perfect. very difficult, but you have to be very confident because the shit wasn't cheap. Oops, sorry. My wife okay. said I couldn't curse on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, well, we'll put a warning label on it. It's all right. Just keep rolling. So, so, I, <clears throat> so that's what kind of like... Once she started her own business with my stepdad, they got married. And he's the guy that I look to as the male role model in my life. Okay. My father was in and out. He finally, like my biological father, he finally moved. He finally got the message from my mother like, hey, if you ever want to see your son, you need to come out here and you need to be the man that you need to be. And back then, I don't know, like, I don't know the arrangement that they had for child support. Like, I didn't, I never got into it with my mom and my Mm -hmm. dad with it. Um, But I know that, you know, my mom was really sour about it all my life. Like, she'd always been definitely a Debbie Downer when it came to my father, my biological dad. So my mom's a very strong-willed woman. Obviously. She is... She's ironclad. Like, you can't move her off her square. Like, if she believes something, hell high water. You know what I'm saying? But she's very conniving, too. She's very smart. And she'll lie to get what she wants. And she's made a lot of money in her life. And she's lost a lot of money in her life. Okay. So, you know, 
once we got money in in LA, then the accoutrements came. You know, the material came. You know, um, nicer house, nicer neighborhood, nicer cars, full refrigerator, middle class. You kind of moved Wait, yourself well, into middle class or upper middle class, like on the verge of being rich. Okay, they did make a lot of money in the eighties, and my my father. Because he was in the throes of alcoholism, he couldn't see his way out. And he didn't understand that there was an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old little boy that stood on a corner in the middle of Los Angeles waiting for him all day when he said that he would come pick me up. And it's a story that's been told over and over and over again about kids that have delinquent parents. and you know. But my parents... My stepdad and my mom worked so much to get us to where we at. I was kind of latchkey. Like I was, you know, I come Kind of before from, that was a term. Maybe. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I finally understood that later that I was latchkey. Because I always thought I wasn't. I, like I always thought it was okay to be alone in your house, you know, like off of Beverly Boulevard, like in like a semi-mansion by yourself with a maid, like cooking you food, like and wearing Gucci shoes and like being like so you were like work yeah rich we were <laughs> wealthy i mean we had cadillacs and mercedes-benz and at one point we had a rolls royce in the garage like oh, we had jaguars like we had cars sure so and we had a nice house then you know then we moved to laurel canyon to a nicer house you know laurel canyon is not a bad place to live no i would say that's pretty, but for pretty a teenage upscale. kid it's very hard to maneuver you know, because you're living in a canyon. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you can just up and ride your skateboard to like, it's either Studio City or you go into Hollywood. And going into Hollywood was the choice. And, you know, in elementary school, that's where I met, you know, kids that were, you know, they had money, they were middle class, but they were into like doing graffiti, breakdancing, hip hop. And I always got sent back when I was younger, too hungry. Oh. My parents, once we could afford it, they, my mom made sure that I got sent back to the old country. So imagine, you're, the first time I got sent back, I think I was like a year and a half old. And that was a time in the 70s, in the early 80s, like where you could just hand your kid to a stewardess and fly that kid like halfway around the world. Like FedExing you to, to Europe. No, because they would take care of your baby. Yeah, yeah. So when I first went to Hungary, I was a year and a half old. And that's where I learned Hungarian. Like, that's where I, I obviously, I learned it from my mom and my dad, speaking mm -hmm. Hungarian in the household. But being bilingual, it's difficult. Um, so then, like, once... My stepdad integrated into our family, and my mom and dad, my mom and stepdad got married. Then I got sent to my grandparents, his parents, who are Holocaust survivors. Oh, man. Well, my stepdad was a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's very difficult to live with those people. <laughs> like, you have to understand that that mentality doesn't go away. Talk about that. What do you mean? So... I just sidetracked, you know, the life and 
So my stepdad's story goes like this. He was a young child, about 12 or 13, when they invaded his home country of Austria. Then they escaped to Belgium. In Belgium, they flourished a little bit. My stepdad, his parents, mom and dad. They, were, uh, they ran a, uh, a confectionery thing. Then 1932 comes along where it's all-out war against the Jews. They get put in a ghetto. They get rounded up. They get put in a ghetto. Um, and they're basically waiting to go to the labor camp and the death camps. And the story goes, from what I understand and what I was told is that my grandmother and my grandfather on my dad's side, my stepdad's side, and him um, basically got put on a train called Train Double X 20. It was Train mm. 20 okay. leaving Brussels to go to Auschwitz. So they were on the train to go to Auschwitz, Buchenwald, mm -hmm. where you don't come back. Right, right. Very rare. There's a handful that actually survived Auschwitz. So, um, I mean, there are people that survived the death camps, but, I mean, they're really old now, and they're disappearing by the day. But the story goes is that they were put in the cattle car, and in the cattle car, there was an old man who smuggled a cane in with him, an old Hasidic man. Okay. So... So imagine. Like a walking cane. Like a walking cane. Okay. He smuggled it in through his jacket. He kept it on his person because he couldn't barely walk. But they would grab everything from you and tell you you'll get it later when you get to where you're going. Like people have luggage and furniture and houses and like they had like paintings. They brought, and brought their they stuff. Brought their, their stuff. Their, like we're moving. Yeah. And the Nazis were like, put it over there. Just get in the fucking car. Just get in the car. Just just throw it down. And we're talking women, children, old, young, like everybody into a cattle car. So there's my stepdad. There's my mom. There's my grandma. There's my grandpa, Eddie. And as the train is on its way, like they take off, they start to go. Um, the story is, is my dad saw the old man stuff the cane in down his into his jacket but there was a circus troupe in the cattle car with them okay and there was a contortionist in there with them and he told the contortionist told my dad because my dad was real little and skinny he wasn't a big guy if you can get the razor wire off of the slit from the cow train from the from the because so imagine like a cattle car it was a cattle car and there's little tiny slit windows but that had razor wire on it if you can take the razor wire off i can try to contort my body to open the latch and, and we can get out the car and my dad goes okay but this old man has a cane and the old man was like here <laughs> like Here's my cane. So, story goes, my grandpa Eddie took off his shirt, wrapped it around my dad's arm, lifted him up, 
and he grabbed with his shirt, he grabbed the razor wire through the cattle car window to get rid of it, okay. to pull it through. Um, I don't think he got hurt doing that, but then the contortionist took, he contorted himself out the thing, unlatched the door with the cane and popped the door open. And immediately as the door popped open, it was so packed that people just fell out and died. The, the train was rolling. Sure. So imagine you're yeah, packed in like, like sardines. Pressure, like a so it's like a pressure being released. And these people, some of them died. Some of them made it. Some of them didn't make it. But then you then the story goes is that the gunfire starts. Oh. The train's not stopping. There's never been a train that stopped. Mm-hmm. In all of... German Third Reich written stuff. There is no. Right. We stopped this train because they were meticulous about right. writing. The trains run on. Down. The trains run on time. So if the listeners want, there, there's a book called the Black Book, and it's about I don't know nine to a thousand pages of every document that the Nazis ever wrote down, like how many. Jews that were on trains, like each train. Right. Like how many people that died that day. It's called the Black Book. Right. From the Third Reich. When I remember reading about the trials in Nuremberg and, and how the cases were relatively easy to prosecute from the standpoint of all this documentation. <laughs> they wrote everything down because they thought they were gonna live for a hundred years. So with that, so with that, so once the gunfire starts, people start backing up out of the, like, they're like, okay, we're not going anywhere. So my dad, my grandma, and my grandpa, whoop, whoop, whoop. And as my stepdad leaps off the train, he gets hit on the right side of his body underneath his nipple here up above his chest here, twice with a, two German bullets out of a submachine gun. As my grandfather, Eddie, comes out, they shoot him in the right leg across his whole leg and break his leg. Now he's shot. Hmm. So they roll, they tumble. Here comes little grandma, five foot, four foot five, off the train, right? So they got my grandpa and my dad to a French monastery that helped them. Wow. And then they joined the resistance and then they made it to America. But the story goes is when they were in hiding back in Brussels, because my grandpa and my grandma were in hiding, because my dad spoke fluent German with no accent. So he sounded fluent German because mm-hmm. he's Austrian. Right. And Austrians speak German. Mm-hmm. And he spoke French. He spoke Yiddish. He spoke Dutch, like he was multilingual. So because he was 13, his job was to take the Nazi soldiers off the trains coming in from wherever for relaxation or whatever for R&R because, you know, Nazis needed to relax too and drink beer and hang out and fornicate with prostitutes that had diseases. And that was my dad's job for the resistance. So he would take them, he would get money from them. He would, in German, he'd be like, yo, 
you want to hang out? I want some girls for tonight? Da, da, da. And the guys would go, like, yeah, sure. Okay, give me X amount of money. Okay, we have Deutschmark or whatever. No, not a problem. And he would take them to where the girls had, you know, gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes. Oh, my God. Like, he would take them, and that was his job because he spoke fluent German. And then he would take that money back and move mom and dad to different places and give money to different people. Hmm. That would tend to change one's look on life if that so was then the they years. <laughs> So then the war ends. Right. They come to America, right? And they were like, yo, you need to go find a job. You're 17, 18 years old. You can't live here. They like padlocked the refrigerator on my dad. Like they were like, yo, you got to go hustle. Your time. It's your time. Like you got to go do your thing. And that's when he started to sell socks and become like, he, he worked at the custom shop off of 56 and Lex in New York doing suits for a long time. He was a very dapper gentleman. He knew how to dress very well. He always wore gorgeous suits. He was He's the one that gave me style. He's the one that gave me... We'll get to your style. Yeah. Uh, this is, well, this I mean, is okay. not style. No. But I'm, <laughs> I clean up well. You clean up well. I know, that I know for sure. But that's my... So, okay. So this is an amazing family yeah, lineage. Thing. For sure. For sure. And then he had two children. And then those are my stepbrother and sister. Like, they're older. Okay. And... They're good, like they're in like. That's an incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, so let's go back to you. I'm yeah, sorry, because we're, no, no, we're going to run out of time. Yeah, here. for sure. But um, and we can do multiple of these yeah. too at some point. But Not a problem. but uh, let's. Uh, so, so you're in California. Yep. You're you know you've got this. Kind so of I start they successful start, like in this this family yeah, that's overcome a sure. tremendous amount of obstacles for and, sure. and things. And so, so my mom starts to send me places because we're well-to-do New York, Israel, Hungary, Europe. Like, I start to see these places and then come back to L.A. and go to school. So I would say in 85, I I antiquated, uh, I, not antiquated, but I, I have it in my head in some type of fashion that, the roof caved in in 85 for me because my father, my stepdad decided to abscond on all the tax that he had to pay on the 40, $35 million that they made. Oh, (laughs) new twist in the story. (laughs) Correct. So I'm in LA, I'm 16. I'm in the middle of summer. Like I'm ready to have my birthday because I was a summer kid and I was born in July. And I always wanted to have a summer birthday party with all my friends come over and we all party, whatever, like that typical that Southern California, California teenager, life, right? Yep. You know, and you know, I kind, I come, I come home one day and my mom says we're leaving, and I literally felt like the roof caved in on my life, and I bucked it. I wasn't. I was like. I'm not doing it. Sure. I'm not doing it. And you guys can do whatever and I'll be on my own. And at that time, my mom was very influential in the Hungarian community in LA. And so they had to leave. So they packed up very quickly. Now imagine you have all these cars, you have all this stuff, and then you got to get all this money over here. 
so they don't catch you over there. Because the postmaster was after them, like they were in trouble. Okay. And I, I thought something was up, like that first part of summer where my dad, my stepdad was like, okay, I got to go to Belgium. Belgium? What are you going to Belgium for? And like I would go, I would go into like the bedroom and like guys would be taping money around my dad, like the Wolf Street, like the Waffle Wolf Street, <laughs> like like that scene. But that was my dad. Okay, like that was my stepdad. All right, he's taking cat like Did. to abscond, and I'm like, what is going on? Like, I thought everything was cool. Like, I thought like, right, you've. That was your reality. So that's when I started to really do drugs and drink. Okay. It was occasional up until that point. Like, I'd party with a couple dudes, smoke a joint, like, not, you know. Okay. You know, hang out, like, because, you know, I am 22 years, 23 years sober. And, you know, I would say my first drink was at eight. First time I smoked a joint was probably at probably nine or ten. Wow. Cocaine was very prevalent in the 80s. Sure. Yeah. It was everywhere. LA. It was everywhere. Everybody smoking blow. Everybody. So it was very easy for us to get a, a hold of it, you know, especially in my household. And um, once my parents had left that summer, I was off the hook. I was off the charts crazy. So where did they go? They went to Belgium. Oh, so they did. They, and they went to Belgium. They my my dad set up an account in Luxembourg, and he played the future commodities market with the money. So that's what. So they're gone. They're gone. You're left. I'm you're left. With 16, maid. 17 years old. Yep. And Rolls Royce. Just kind of waiting for everybody to come and cherry pick. So I was stuff bucking and, it. Like I wouldn't come home. So my mom couldn't find me. I'd go stay at this guy's house. I'd go because I'm I'm insulated with rich kids. Sure, I could go live at their house for months, and their parents wouldn't even know I'm there. But we were all partying. It's the summer, you know. We're all hanging out on Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood Boulevard, and driving these cars and going to see these chicks and cutting off exhaust of a van, stealing shit. Like, sorry, um, <laughs> getting into trouble. Getting into trouble. Okay. And that's where I really like honed the thing with graffiti and like kids in LA, especially my boy Kelly, who's a very famous graffiti writer right now. Like we kind of gravitated to each other. And like he's in MoMA now. He's doing like buildings. Like he's super famous. And what's his name? Oh, uh, Kelly Gravel. His Kelly Gravel. Risky, yeah. Okay. Like he's like, like, once we kind found, of made it into a yeah, like he became kind of like a, like a Keith Haring <laughs> for sure, more popular. Okay, he's really big time. Anyway, um, but like, so at 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 one point, my mom had to get guys, 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 to come get me. That I know a guy, guys. Right. Okay. That literally, literally worked for my mom. Okay. And if they needed something, if my mom needed something done, these were the guys to go get it done. Okay. Period. No questions asked. So 
I just happened to be in my house eating some food because I was broke. And I knew my house was tons of food. It was right before my 16th birthday. I was planning on throwing this huge rager. Like I had kegs coming. I had a band coming. Oh boy. Like we were going to have. And uh, they come into the house. They go, you have a day. I go, excuse me? You can't talk to me like that. And they're like, you're either going to go to Belgium and go to your mom and dad in a bag. Or you can take your suitcases, get your shit together and leave and we can take it to the airport. It's your choice. Enough is enough, they said. Okay. And these guys, you didn't play with these guys. Right. You kind of, even at that age, you kind of figured out. They knew me. They've known me since I was a little boy. Right. So me intimidating them, not going to happen. Because these guys are gangsters. Okay. No, straight up. These guys are gangsters. Right, right. And they're Hungarian mafia gangsters. And they're going to do what my mom asked them to do. Period. And my mom asked them to bring her only son to the airport to get on a plane to go to Belgium. So they're going to do that. And I was like, listen. Just let me have this party. Let me have this blowout. Right? I'll leave the next day. I promise. They're like, you promise? I go, I promise. They're like, you going to invite us? I'm like, Yeah. I'm like, of course. Because <laughs> they were, they like they the party. They like the party too, right? Yeah. But they like young girls <laughs> too, you know what I'm saying? Like they were, theme here. Yeah. Got it, okay. So we had this rager at my house. I mean, people passing out, cops came. Like it was one for the ages. Like my, my friends that I keep in contact with, like over 30, 40 years, still talk about that party. And then the... the the next phrase is, you disappeared. I did, which I did. Because literally they put me on a plane and I went to Belgium. Okay. So get this. So I'm 16. In Belgium. I don't speak French. I don't speak Dutch. I have everything I own in bags and I'm crying my eyes out. I don't want to leave LA. Like I literally felt betrayed. That's the word. I felt betrayed. Mm-hmm. I felt like my parents betrayed my childhood because I'm a child. I'm a, I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. Who does that? So you're so like enamored with this money and you, did, you didn't want to pay the taxes on it. So you uprooted a 16-year-old boy that had like everything. I had everything in front of me. Like I had all of LA. Like I, I had it all of it. Like... Right, you're living the dream. How could you or be you're so looking at the selfish? Dream. Sure. That's not, that's not what normal people do. All right, so we're back on again. We That's one of the fun perks of doing these in a, an active um, office warehouse as people come and go. So, um, so basic, I think where we left off was you were, you were, you were feeling betrayed. You're yep. in Belgium. No language, complete yep, life's to, completely turned upside down. Yep, got so, to Belgium, got to Brussels, and you know, I, in retrospect and looking back now that I'm almost fifty something years old, I'm fifty years old, and it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, that's a point in my life where I constantly go back to, and if it was different for me, you know what I'm saying? Like that's that um, 
What's that one movie with where the revolving door? I don't know. It's like Groundhog's Day. In my yeah. Brain. Okay. Right. Right. Like, but I mean, but it's one of those things where happen, that like pivotal that would intersection. Would I still be the dude that I became in all the stuff that I did in my life if that didn't happen to me? Like all the circumstances leading up to that point, because it really soured me. Because mm-hmm. when I finally got back to California. Everybody was gone. Like, no numbers worked. Like, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have a social network. Like, I didn't have... I didn't know where anybody was. How long was that? About three years. Okay, so three years. Graduated so now you're 19 years old and... Yep. And then, you know, what do you want to do? Well, try to go to college. Okay. What college do you want to go to? Let me go try to, you know, San Diego State. I did that for a while. And then me and my best friend moved in in the dorms there and it lasted about say three years and then i left okay and i just was like i'll phone it in like i'll just phone it in and that's when the real like another pivotal no 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 i was just playing football and you know being young and not caring like obviously the the monetary value of selling drugs started to seek light in my life. And then knowing that I was good at that, I was like, oh, okay. I can get this and make this and do this and make that. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like, This is all why you're still at San Diego State? Yeah, or this like, is- but I've been doing that for years. I just, you just, like, Belgium, like, I had hash, and Belgium back then was the 14 was the drinking age. Okay. So I'm already 16. I'm drinking. I'm drinking in Belgium. Like, we're smoking hash, like, every night. Like, we're mm-hmm. taking acid, like, being teenagers, like, in the 80s in Belgium. But, like, I come back to California, and I just felt lost. I was just like, dude, this is it's not where I want to be. And then... Which is saying a lot. From California in the '80s was a pretty, yeah, still a pretty now fast it's the 90s. place. Now it's the '90s, but it's still a pretty fast place. And it's no right, internet And you're yet. coming back from Belgium. Correct. Correct. You're, so still at a, you're still at a different, yeah, yeah for sure, different and then frequency. None of my friends are around. Right. Like that infrastructure is gone. Graffiti guys, this and that. Like I could be in a total different headspace right now. Like I could be running a gallery somewhere on Fairfax or doing some crazy <laughs> thing, you know? Like, I could be, you know... Rocking an ascot. Though. Something. <laughs> you know? So, anyway... <clears throat> so, I had a discussion with my biological dad. Because he came and saw one of my graffiti pieces that I did. And he goes, well, why don't you go to art school? I was like, well, that's a good idea. So I started looking at art schools in California, Otis Parsons, Pacific Design. Wow. And they're like, uh, yeah, no. Okay. So the only art school that would take me was up in Seattle. And there was a little tiny art school called the Art Institute of Seattle. And this is way before there was one in L.A., one in Chicago, one in Milwaukee, one in San Antonio, one in Portland. Like... And it was ran by, uh, it was all based on a graphic design guru legend named Fred Griffin. 
okay. who still teached there. And then that's where I made my bones. Like, I was on my own, 20-something years old. I'm in Seattle. Start doing, like, graffiti all the time. Like, we're going to art school during the day, partying at night. And that's where I really, really started to hone in on being that. A creative person. Zen one. Zen? Okay. That's when I really hunkered down and became this persona that had this illusion of grandeur of being, you know, what I saw in the movies of what what I idolized. As far as like Capone and gangster and dealing dope, dealing drugs, having a gun, like I really like pushed that hard. Because I was on the streets doing graffiti, that automatically back then gave you a stigma that you were kind of like on the fringes of society. Okay. Because you're scrolling your name on public works. You're going from town to town scrawling your bullshit name. Sorry. All right. Your 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 name on people's property because that's the game of graffiti. Mm-hmm. True vandalism, true graffiti is that you go into a town like Minneapolis and you go to the local hardware store and you steal spray paint and you literally tag or in hip hop or in graffiti terms you bomb the city. You bomb the system. Train uh trains if you have them buses and then the street because when you walk along the street you start tagging on people's stuff then you take the bus you start tagging on the bus if you have a train system you start doing all right so you're doing this in seattle seattle then you know the 90s come along and then you have grunge and then it all explodes and then the graffiti just explodes i get in serious trouble with the feds on embezzlement that was a big jump. Yep. So I got in. So I get out of art school and I literally don't have anything to do. And I'm dealing dope. I'm dealing drugs. And I got in trouble with the feds embezzling uh, money through a bank scam. And uh, that was my first real taste of, yeah, no more county jail. You're going to prison. <laughs> Like, real jail. Yeah, real jail. Real jail. Real jail. Um, and, you know, I would have to preface to say, and I hate to say this, but prison just makes you a better criminal. Hmm. You just hone your craft. It's like going to a trade school. Old timers in there are just like, okay, this is how you do it. This is how you cuff it. This is how you get away with this. This is how you get away with that. Because you're, think about it, you constantly have no privacy in where you're at so you have to come up with different ways to get away with what you need to get away with so if you apply those to the street it's even easier Hmm. okay see what i'm saying i get it so once i basically like graduate school for criminals (laughs) right and i'm 21 22 you know football career is non-existent like my art career nobody's like I mean, I did a couple of little things here and there, but if you're not an educated, degreed artist that is on the track to a gallery. Right. Because back then, graffiti was looked down upon. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like now where it's in LeBron James Sprite commercials and it's on video games. And No, you were a piece of... Counterculture. Yeah, you were... Correct. Right. We were punk rock. 
You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. we were anarchy because we were going on painting middle of the night. We were painting things, you know, and then we'd come back in the morning and boom, there it is, you know, and the city would freak out and the city would come and rush and paint it out. And we just come back the next night, rooftops, billboards, like we would just do it, you know, because. Okay. So wait, no. All right. So we're going to go back to your, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit. Cause yeah. you, so you're in, you're in like real jail now. Yeah. And so you get out of jail, I'm assuming, obviously. I um, do. And then what happens? I have a child. I have my oldest, Alexander. He's born. Does that change things for you? Yeah, but in the worst way. Because now I'm really, really getting into it. Like, I'm really like, okay, now we just got to step up the gangster. Now we really got to make some moves. Because I got this child to feed. You know? So it goes from survival to now I need to make money because it's not just me that needs yeah. to eat. Yeah. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, that's, you know, dealing dope every day, getting into things that you're not supposed to get into. Plus, I'm on four-year probation paper, and I owe the court like 5200 bucks. That's a lot of money mm-hmm. for a kid that, you know, doesn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. So then I get my mom and dad involved. I call my mom and dad, and I'm in like, Hungary. No, or in or, no, no. They had moved back. They moved, okay, all right. They had lived in L.A. Um, oh, so they went to prison. <laughs> okay. Also, all because right. they were we com- left that part out. We left yeah. that part out. So they tried to re-enter New York, and they got busted. Sure. So my dad, my stepdad went to Allentown, Pennsylvania and did two and a half years. And then my mom went to Dansbury, Connecticut, women's prison for two and a half years. Wow. And they were actually coming back for, my grand, for their grandchild, for Alexander. Okay. they wanted to see him. Because I couldn't take him over there. But we had taken him over there. Okay. Times. So, um, so, so I, was dealing, I was dealing with that. Yeah, I was gonna say not not parents are in jail. I think the the, the psychological term is heavy trauma. Yeah, PTSD. <laughs> yeah, so you've got so you know, mom and dad are in jail. Now yeah. they're out of jail. You've got a you've got a, a baby. Yeah, and so you're stepping this up. You're stepping up all of your <clears throat> activities. Yep. And then what happens? Uh, me and uh, my child's my child's mother. Uh, breakup. Okay. So she takes the child and goes back to Maryland to uh, her parents' house to raise my son. So I had a choice either to stay in Seattle or move to Maryland and go that route. Okay. I chose, because of the probationary period that I was on, I could leave the state. So my baby mom took the baby and left and he was about four or five when they left um so i stayed in seattle and then i got into another relationship with another woman who i had my daughter with so then i had a daughter okay so then i started really like now i gotta take care of this one i gotta take care of that one so when I got my parents involved, I was like, listen, I'm on this four-year paper stuff. I need X amount of dollar. Can you help me out so I can leave Seattle and move to Florida to where family is? Family had a job for me, work, this, that. 
And my mom was like, okay, I'll help you out. Well, okay. So we cobbled it together. And at that time, I had already started, like, basically doing sneakers and, like, doing clothing, like, doing different things in... When you say doing sneakers, what does that mean? Like, painting on sneakers and customizing shoes and and doing things that were um, not of illegitimate stuff. Taking my art on... Onto clothing. Okay. So like graffiti on like a pair of white Stan Smiths or something. Or to... a pair of shell toes or doing a jean jacket or doing a pair of pants or something like that. Okay. So, um, it was really convenient because I was really like hunkered down into the hip hop scene there. Because I was doing so much graffiti and we were going to shows and we were getting the word out that we were doing all these things. So within that... Uh, once I got off probation and once we uh, paid the commitment, I was on the first thing smoking with my pregnant second baby mama. Got in her car, drove all the way to Minnesota, first time I'd ever been there, and met up with my brother, stayed at my brother's house for a couple days or a day or two, and then got back in the car and drove all the way down to South Florida. And... I think that's the part that we can go into next part because that's longer. Okay. All right. So we're going to break this up into multiple yeah. parts. I think that the South Florida is really important. Like okay. what I did in South Florida and how I did it in South Florida. All right. That. So this is a part we're going to end on this one. We're going to yeah. call this part one. one. And then we're going to do a part two. Right. And then fair? we can get into my business about what I actually do and how good of a real guy I really am. <laughs> This is a story of redemption <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, coming around and, and getting straightened no, I out. Live in, I live in Waconia. <laughs> live in a, I know. I, you know. Middle of Carver <laughs> County. <Yeah. laughs> well, that's the part, I, you know, my, my eyeballs are practically bleeding over here because we're, you know, we're going to get to this guy who lives in a very suburban neighborhood yeah, in Waconia and walks a dog. <laughs> and so we're going to break this into a second part, but we're going to end on this one and I promise this will be our first sequel podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Fair enough? Breaking the cherry. All right. Popping the cherry. <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. All right. <laughs> All right. We're going to close out. We're going to close right now. Thanks.